Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The scene here on the morning of the resurrection in John 20. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she finds it empty. And then she runs back and reports to the disciples and Peter and John race to the tomb. And then they see that it's empty and they run back and go tell the others. But Mary has meanwhile come back to the tomb and she's lingering there. Searching for the body of Jesus. They still don't understand or she doesn't understand. And that is where we take up in verse 11. Let's read from verse 11 of chapter 20 to verse 17. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. I think Mary demonstrates the temptation to stay at the tomb. And it is Jesus who tells her, go. Why are you weeping? Why are you searching for me here? Leave the tomb. Tell the others. Last week in our study of the triumphal entry, we saw that Jesus, he pronounces the meaning of the passion, but I think it's also the meaning of not only his death, but his resurrection. In 12, 31 to 32 of John, he says, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And so the ruler of this world, I think, would keep us hanging around the tomb. Memorializing the dead Jesus instead of worshiping the resurrected Jesus. We have to keep two things in view, the cross and the resurrection. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, it's like one movement, isn't it? In Jesus' description, the lifting up of the cross culminates, I think, in the resurrection, in the ascension. And as I said last week, the killing of Jesus exposes the history of tombs and tomb-making and murder and myth-making. Sorry. Brown recluse, I think. (laughs) And now I go from you. (laughs) For fear of death. (laughs) Uh, 
I know he's here somewhere. <laughs> Okay, as this verse describes it, the ruler of this world, the principle and power of this world, the father of lies, he's described as, that he's going to be cast out in the movement that Jesus is describing. This world power, you know, social, psychological, is exposed by this process the emptying out of the tomb. That's what it is. It's an emptying out of tomb religion in the resurrection. And so the memorializing of the dead in the tomb religions, I think that's what has the world enslaved. The covenant with death, as Isaiah calls it. That Jesus renders the tomb empty. And the father of lies and the one who was a murderer from the beginning, in Jesus' description, is now being cast out. And so Jesus says to Mary, do not search for me at the tomb, but go. And so with the casting out of the prince of the world, what the Bible calls the law of sin and death, I think, is lifted. It no longer constrains us. And we might understand this law literally in the way that Paul in 2 Corinthians describes it. He says that it's inscribed on stones. The law or letter which kills. And we might think of this literally as Jesus describes it in Matthew. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt. You know, complete the guilt of your fathers. And so as I described last week, tomb building, memorializing, hanging around tombs. Whether the prophets killed by the Jews, those sacrificed to the gods, or those killed in war, the tomb can cover over the reality and the futility of killing and death. Jesus' resurrection does not allow that to happen. In Jesus' description, those who build the tombs shared in the guilt of those who do the killing. Apparently, the memorializing, the sacralizing, obscures the reality. And Jesus, in the same passage in both Matthew and Luke, he sees his life as the exposure of the reality of the blood shed since the foundation of the world, he says. And so the law inscribed on tablets of stone, it looks exactly like the inscription on the gravestone as this shared law describes the law of death. You know, the one certain thing upon which all human law and thought appeals. And so I think with Mary, the world would linger at the tomb as culture begins at the gravesite, quite literally with the origins of writing, which begin with memorializing the dead, but also because tombs and graves mark in Jesus' description a kind of cultural solidarity, which forms around projecting violence onto others. There's no moment at which the Jews are more unified. Zionists, you know, all the Jews are unified 
in scapegoating Jesus. And that is a picture of the way that culture is always formed. The tomb marks the founding of culture as it is a literal line which demarcates inside and outside. And this is why the empty tomb of Jesus relativizes the law. It relativizes all law. The empty tomb empties out the tomb religions built upon, as we describe the ancestor worship or memorializing the dead. And the discovery of the tomb meant that Jesus' corpse and its resting place could not be made into a shrine. It's empty. It could not become the location for one more religion built upon death. Gail Bailey describes it this way, given the significance of the empty tomb, nothing symbolizes Christianity's apostasy in history as perfectly as do the Crusades. The convulsion, that thing that brought Europe into existence, begins when Pope Urban II launched the First Crusade by passionately imploring Christendom to arm for the task of reclaiming the tomb of Christ. The sacred mission remained the supreme rallying cry for all the subsequent crusades. They're going to kill Jews, they're going to kill Muslims in order to regain the tomb of Christ. In other words, Christianity's most notorious revival of tomb religion, of sacred violence, involved a repudiation of the story that we're reading this morning, of the empty tomb. By clinging to the tomb, the crusaders cling to the violence and the law, I believe, of sin and death. Faith and I watched a video. Guy was, I don't know if he was doing it with his cell phone, but he was walking through the tomb in Jerusalem. The, the Armenian church, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, they have all built a church over the sepulcher of Christ. But the ornate building encrusted with jewels and constructed for it's a place of sacredness. Uh, I think Christians have been tempted by the tomb, by a religion of the tomb. And the warning comes from Jesus at the empty tomb. Who are you looking for? The angels say, he is not here. He is risen. The father of lies would keep us at the tomb as the grave is the portal to eternal life. The father of lies converts the tomb of the slain into a shrine. Maybe because that's where we can all gather together. You know, think of the people gathered in the courtyard as they're plotting the killing of Jesus. And even Peter joins that circle as they're putting Jesus on trial. Murder calls for the tomb, writes Rene Girard, and the tomb is but the prolongation and perpetuation of the murder. As Bailey describes it, the tomb of those who died violently is a myth in stone. Both the myths and the tombs relate the story of past violence and give it meaning. They exonerate those who fall under their mythic influence from moral responsibility for collective violence. They edify and unify the mourners. And so tombs are the architectural components 
of rituals that make it possible for those who have raged and murdered to feel themselves aligned with the suffering and free from the guilt. That's what Jesus is saying. You build the tombs and you agree with the fathers who killed the prophets. You just need to look at the newspaper to see the truth of this. In the July 1992 edition of the New York Times, it carries a story about the ethnic fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh in Azerbaijan. And the story begins by quoting a notice posted in Armenia where assistance for the Nagorno-Karabakh partisans was organized. Here's what the notice reads. All those who hold dear the graves of our ancestors, our churches, and our holies must sow terror on the foe. By day and by night they must perish. You hear what they're saying? We're going to hold the graves of our ancestors dear and we're going to memorialize their death in the killing of our enemies. As Bailey puts it, whether one is living in the ancient world or the modern one, in order to sow terror on the foe night and day, one must go mad. If the terror can be sanctified, if the violence can be experienced as holy, and if the esprit de corps of those sowing the terror can achieve religious intensity, then the madness can pass for lucidity itself. The father of lies of which John speaks is the force that converts the grave into the shrine. Those killed violently into the solemn obligation to unleash violence on others. That's precisely what the crusaders did. Ah, oh, they killed Jesus, let's get him. The angel says to Mary, why are you weeping? And then when she turns from the tomb, I think it's significant. She turns from the tomb to see the risen Jesus. We have to turn from the tomb to see the resurrected Christ. As long as we cling to the tomb, we cannot understand either the cross or the resurrection, which forever obliterates tomb religion, tomb culture. Another book, Robert D. Kaplan, describes the rise of Slobodan Milosevic, who, if you remember, was the leader, the president who committed genocide on his own people. This is what he writes in the introduction to the book. An ambitious Serbian communist leader came to a field in Kosovo called the Field of Blackbirds. On the anniversary of the defeat there of a Serbian commander, he says, they'll never do this to you again. Never again will anyone defeat you. And that was the moment, writes Robert Kaplan, when the Serbian revolt against the Yugoslav Federation began. And of course the speaker was Slobodan Milosevic. And the defeated commander they're talking about, he was killed in 1389. That is 600 years previously. And they take his coffin a year later and they'll pass it from village to village on a long pilgrimage followed by multitudes of sobbing mourners. 600 years later, they're still weeping over the tomb, still weeping over the coffin. And it's around that coffin and tomb that modern Yugoslavia arises around Milosevic. And so the year 1989 marked the fall of communism, but the 600th anniversary of the defeat 
of Neslazar. Why do you weep, Mary? He is not here. We are not immune then to the same power that John's gospel calls the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning, the law of this world that is made absolute when we make the grave absolute. Every area of human endeavor, I think, can be hemmed in by the law. And I presume the key biblical insight repeated in a variety of forms is a refutation of any system which would cling to the tomb. This is what the Bible is about. The notion that the sacrificial system of the temple is an end in itself is refuted. Hebrews 10.8, in the claim, sacrifice and burnt offering, God says, I never desired. Whether it is the food laws, the Sabbath laws, or simply the law per se, the biblical witness is that there is no life in the law. There is no life in the grave. There is no life in the tomb. The tomb is empty. And to presume that the scriptures of the letter of the law contains life, or that it is absolute, that is death. That is sin. That is the law of sin and death. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The letter of the law, or the law of the mind, or the law of the body. These are relative. These are finite. These are created. They are limited. And the law of sin and death is to take that limited thing and make it absolute. That's why it's sin. And that's why it's death. It's an absolutizing of the law and it is an all-encompassing law which Jesus overturns. That's the point of the death and resurrection of Christ. Now I'm saying all of this because I think as its name implies there is a theology, contractual theology, which presumes that the law is absolute. It is a form of Christianity that lingers at the tomb, imagining that the main thing about the story in the Gospels is the tomb, is the cross, and it leaves out the resurrection. It says the law is a perfect expression of God's righteous character, and human failure to live up the law is definitive of sin in this contractual understanding. The punishment for sin then, oh, well then you have to balance the law. God's honor has been impugned and his legal, righteous requirement is set forth in punishment. In other words, the tomb of Jesus contains all the answer. The death of Jesus contains all the answer. Just linger at the tomb. You don't need the resurrection. And I'm afraid that's what our Sunday school lesson was guilty of today. We have all death and no resurrection. In a contractual reading of how we know God, God's ethical demands, that's what the Jews have, the law. They know the law, or everybody else knows the law innately. And you know just enough law to know you're guilty, and you don't have enough law to be not guilty. In this system, one knows just enough. You know you're guilty and you're, you, know, you feel the pain and humans are sinful and everyone violates the law. They fail to meet the ethical demands. And if you look at yourself honestly, then you know that you're damned and all people are afraid and they want a way out. But what this religion misses, I'm afraid what it's doing, it's repeating what 
Hebrews describes, what Paul describes, what Jesus describes is the religion of the father of lies, a religion that enslaves us to fear of death. Through death, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. What's the problem? We're enslaved to he who holds the power of death, the devil. I don't think he holds the power of death so much as the fear of death and frees those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He is risen. The fear is finished. In contractual theology, the fear of death reigns as the law is absolute. And in this system, Christ offers a resolution, you know, to the pro double problem. You know the law, you know you're incapable of keeping the law, and you're afraid of punishment. And what you need to do is believe in Jesus' death, and this somehow adds the legal benefits he accrues to the believer. I'm afraid it is a religion which absolutizes the tomb and makes death the means to life. The alternative to this misconstrued legal knowing is what Paul describes as resurrection knowing, Easter knowing. As he describes in both Philippians and Romans, there's a knowing grounded in the law, in the grave, and there's a resurrection knowing. Apart from knowing the resurrected Jesus, one is bound by the law of sin and death, in which one, Paul says in both Romans 8, Romans 7, Philippians 3, you have believed a lie. We've all believed a lie. This lie is the lie, I'm afraid, which contractual theology repeats. But every system which would make the law absolute repeats. Resurrection knowing, knowing by the power of the resurrection is guided, Paul says, by the Spirit. And Paul contrasts this living knowledge, this living spirit, with the letter of the law which kills. In contractual theology, God is known as a just, law-giving, angry judge. Paul says the death and resurrection of Christ is the vindicating act of God. But now we are made right through the resurrection. It is not simply that he is making things legally right, but he's literally making things right. Things ain't right because of death and violence and killing, and God is making them right through the resurrection. Do not linger at the tomb, but go, for the tomb is empty. I think the contractual form of the Christian faith, it poses the wrong problem. It gives us the wrong answer. You know, law is satisfied through the death of Christ. End of story. We'll just read the story of Isaiah. We don't even need Easter. We can just leave out the resurrection. It's not necessary in a wrong understanding. It concludes death and resurrection are secondary to the main problem. It's actually God's wrath due to the transgression of law. It divides out ethics and says righteousness is a mere legality as it does not bring about a real or necessary change. Is the resurrection a real change? Is it a necessary change? Absolutely. And that's what we partake of in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. Not simply the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. So a religion which imagines God must punish the sinner as the law requires it, and then says he does not punish the sinner, 
but punishes a perfectly righteous man instead and then attributes his righteousness to the sinner, it's working in the very abstract legal fiction which the New Testament consistently refutes. That's not New Testament Christianity. That's the religion of the tomb. Paul describes himself after all. He says, I'm perfect. When he's a Pharisee, I'm perfect in regard to the law. But of course he says, and I'm also the chief of sinners. You can be both. Jesus challenges the law continually. He says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. He points out that the sick need a physician. The law doesn't tell you that. The blind need to see. The law doesn't tell you that. The point of the Sabbath is not to obstruct human need. Jesus teaches again and again, but it's to meet that need. The law is a death-dealing instrument where it is not relativized by love. I think that's the summation of the gospel. He who would love his neighbor as himself and love God with all his heart, soul, and mind relativizes the law to that love. In Romans 8, 2, For the law of life, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do not linger at the tomb. It's rendered empty. It's relative. And it's rendered that way by the resurrection. And so resurrection tells us what the problem is. Law is not a primary category, but the focus is on the misorientation to the law, resulting in a living death. Yet the economy of salvation in a contractual theory is presumed to operate on the basis of this lie. I believe we have a Christianity that's worshiping the wrong God, the father of lies. This lie that would keep us lingering at the tomb of Jesus as if it is here that we can meet God. But God himself says at the tomb, go, he's risen, he's not here. Paul says that apart from the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, you are still in your sins. Because sin reigns through death and death no longer reigns only where Christ's death and resurrection have defeated the orientation to death. And so without the resurrection, the redemptive, liberating effect of Christ's death remains ineffective. For his death and resurrection, it's just two sides of redemption from the bondage to sin and death. New life, resurrection life, is the direct correlate of this delivery from the bondage to the slavery of fear of death. So the conclusion, the resurrection relativizes every law, pointing to the one who is above and over the law. The law of sin and death no longer holds us under its sway because the power of resurrection is now put in its place. Stop lingering at the tomb, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am raised. I ascend to the Father and your Father and my God and your God. He is risen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.